recently had the occasion to listen in on a conversation that a seminary professor was having, and he was talking about one of his former students who was also studying to become a seminary professor, and he said that at some point um, during his student's studies, I think he was studying in Germany or somewhere, he came back to his seminary professor and said, I'm not really sure anymore if I know who God is. He just felt completely untethered, just kind of cast adrift in all of his sophisticated studying in Scripture and on what other Christians had said and thought and even prayed about God. He'd lost his way and wasn't sure anymore if he even knew who God was, if God existed. He was just completely adrift. Maybe you're here like that this morning, not because of your studies, maybe just because of the school of life pressing down on you. And I wonder if that's not you and you had someone sitting across from you, what would you say to that person? How would you answer, who is this God? Well, what I found fascinating was the response of the seminary professor. He said this, you want to know who this God is? You want to know who God is? God is an electing God. Now you're thinking, why? that sounds like a very wonky professor answer. But then he went on. God is the God who has loved you before the foundation of the world. The God that you're seeking to know again is a God who has loved you before any of this started. He chose you. And I want us to think about that uh, just for a few moments as we continue. I know that Eric started in Ephesians. As we look at um, these verses, verses uh, 3 to 14, because it's interesting, and maybe you're not where that professor or that, that seminary student was, and, and, and maybe you don't even feel put, pressed down upon. But I wonder if you have the same response as a Christian that Paul does here, because when he starts off this letter, and maybe Eric mentioned this last week, the verses, uh, it's either 1 through 14 or 3 to 14, in the Greek is all one sentence, right? That's, that's just a teacher's nightmare, and it's a student's nightmare if you want to diagram that. But Paul is just so excited. It, it, it's really like someone talking about how much they, have, they just love this person. And maybe you've been in a room with people who are, uh, newly engaged or newly married, or maybe they've been married for a long time, and they just want to, they're just overflowing, they're brimming, they're so excited about talking about this other person and the love that they have. That's kind of the idea that Paul has here as he's talking about the love that God has for his people, that it just responds in Paul, it brings out this response of deep abiding joy. And you think, well, Paul's professional, he's had special experiences. That's all true. But did you know that when Paul wrote this, he's in prison, right? He is not having his best life now. He is kind of at the bottom rung of maybe what we would consider spiritual or even world experiences. He might be tempted to say, God, where are you? Why aren't you with me? But instead, He's just overflowing with this sense of joy and excitement because of the love of God. And so I want to ask you before I read this passage, and I want you to hear this passage with this in mind. Are you at a place in your life 
where you see the story of God's redemption of you as yours. Something that impacts you on a personal, owned way. Such that there are times, whether in private reflection or public conversation, where you're just kind of overflowing and excited about who God is. Is that your hope? Hear now God's word as we consider uh, who this God is and what he has done for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, would you please help me to deliver this word to your people, a people you love, a people that you have set your love upon even before any of them were formed fearfully and wonderfully in their mother's wombs. And yet that is a love as eternal as it is that we so soon forget and becomes just old news, not good news. Would you reinvigorate us? Would you relight the flame, stoke the embers of our love? Not just that we would have some kind of frothy, emotion-driven response, but it would be deep and abiding, a transformative love, a transformative joy. We are all about joy as your people, but we, we, we need to be all about joy. So would you help us in this? Bring your word for the sake of your name and for the sake of those sitting here, including and maybe even especially me. We ask all this in our Redeemer Jesus's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to do two things here. Two points. I'm not a point person, but seems like when I'm here, maybe I do points. So y'all can just assume I'm a point person. The first one is this, and we're going to answer the question looking at the text And because it's important as we're thinking about what is my emotional, my spiritual relationship with God, what does it look like, what does it even feel like, the question we're answering is, who is God, right? So we're even answering the seminarian's question. Well, Paul answers the question, and he starts in verse 2 by telling us who this God is, and he starts with Father, Son, and then he concludes, and that's in verse 2, and then he concludes in verse 13 with the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul tells us who God is. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now Paul is one of the early Christians, and his experience of God is not that God is some kind of warm energy. God is not some nameless sacred. God is not, and I'm looking at my big air quotes here, air quotes, uh, spirituality. Whenever Paul talks about God, he says, this is the God who made us. God is a creator. God is with us, and somehow we are in him. But Paul's not just an early Christian. Paul is also a rabbi. He is a first century Jew, and so he is a monotheist. He believes in the oneness of God. That is foundational for him. It's the call Adonai Eloheinu Ehad, the Lord our God is one. He believes that to the very corpuscles of his being, right? But Jesus comes along. And now Paul believes still and confesses still that God is one, but he confesses it differently, right? He, he, he prays to God, but he now prays to God in Christ. And he acts like God is here and he realizes that God is present and among us and he is healing and he is forgiving. And so this is what Paul is processing in light of the experience in the presence, the, the tactile, the flesh and blood, fingertips experience of Jesus. And, and the first Christians are sorting through this as well, that Jesus has come in the flesh and he identifies himself with all the things that are divine, but then he goes to the cross and he dies, but then he rises again. And then as he, after he rises, he is with his people and then he ascends and then God sends who? The, the Holy Spirit. And so these first Christians and Paul among them now realize that God is with us in our worship, in our lives, in our prayer, in our singing, in our scripture, and and, and even in the presence of the sacraments in a special way. But how is God with us? Well, because Jesus has been raised, he is with us through the Holy Spirit. And so later Christians came up with this language of Trinity, which for some of us feels like this clunky problem that needs to be solved. But It's not a problem to be solved as much as a message to be proclaimed. It's an admission that Jesus and the Holy Spirit now require us to rethink our experience and our confession of who the God of Israel is. And and even the uh, experience and confession of the oneness of God. And by the way, this isn't just kind of Paul saying, hey, I want to show you something new and esoteric. There's actually deep fundamental implications for us to know that God is Trinity. It has a a shaping on how we do our own relationships and how we think about really what is ultimately important. Why? Because, and I know Eric has talked about this, and so I'll just put on a second layer of paint here, but it's an important layer, so hang in there with me, that before the foundation of the world, God existed in relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That wasn't some idea that came along after he created, that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why that's important is that means that love, love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always existed, that there is something foundational, constitutive of reality about love. 
Love has always existed in God. And that means love has even preceded the existence of everything. So when we, for example, read in 1 John, God is love, that's where you can get your real Bible banger out and say, bro, brother, I almost said bro, brother, you can take that literally. That there is something that is absolutely and utterly true. That God is love. That is something that is at the core to the degree that we can even talk about the core of God, uh, of who he is. And the wonderful thing for us about that is that love is not just divinely focused, but that love goes out and it results in the creation of all that God has made. It results in the creation of the world and it results in the creation of those who are made in his image and mysteriously have something similar to that same capacity to have a relationship of love, of self-giving and self-receiving that forms the basis of all of our relationships. And if you want to get down to it, if you want to know why it is better, I won't speak in pragmatic terms, but why it is better to be a Christian than not, right? Now, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, and I'm not denigrating you, but this is something that's at the core of what we are. You know, one of the chief apologetic questions I think that we're having to deal with, I see this in my uh, work in, in pastoring uh, campus ministers in the West and the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Northwest, is, is love something that is real? Is love something that matters? Our relationships, what we give our heart and our affection to? Or is it just kind of like smoke that comes off of a biological fire? That love doesn't really matter. What we value, what we give our lives for is of no ultimate consequence. We're all just kind of atoms bumping up against one another. I mean, in a sense, love is the most fundamental value. And Christianity gives us an answer for that. It gives an explanation of why love seems to matter all across the board for people who are not Christians or who could care less about the claims of Christ. It tells us that love exists because God exists. All right, that's another sermon for another time, but I want you to think about that. And that's something that's at the core of what Paul is talking about as well. Well, if, if love is something that is core to who God is, how does God show love? And so here's the second point. If we were talking about who is this God, he is a God who is Trinity and he loves. What has this God done? Well, look at how Paul talks here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's almost like he has these Lego bricks of blessing, right? And he's just stacking them one on top of the other. He wants to talk about who, who, what God has done. He's talking about blessing after blessing. And what do we mean by blessing? I mean, one idea of blessing when we think about what God has done for us is that he, he gives us a life that is full that flourishes in accordance with his design. He even talks in a sense, doesn't he, about how we bless God. Now that may sound weird. Is there God, is God have some kind of deficit? Do we need to put something in God's pocket to make him better off? To bless God is just, is not to help God as much as it's saying, really recognizing on the part of Paul and on our part as well, that you, God, are the source of all fullness and abundance. A fullness and abundance of spiritual riches. And that's why when um, commenting on this passage, N.T. Wright says, what does it mean to receive a blessing from God? What is blessing? It means this, that all of the spiritual resources of God in Christ for us to flourish are being leveraged for us by God. Let me just say that again, because it's, it's, it's it's really saying that God is for us. He's working for us. Blessing is all of the spiritual resources of God in Christ 
for us to flourish are being leveraged by God for us. So what are these blessings then? We could talk about them in very ethereal, up in the, up in the stratosphere. We could get really down low. Oh, it's, I'm getting a, a Lincoln Navigator or something like that. Is it Lincoln, Ford Navigators? You know, so we could think of it in a very material way. But Paul answers, what is blessing? What is it that we, what are these uh, spiritual Lego bricks that he stacked for us? Verse 4, what are the blessings? He has chosen us in him. And then he goes on. He has predestined us for adoption. Now, maybe you're thinking, all right, preach. I want to hear this. I'm a good Presbyterian. I want to hear you rock and roll on predestination. Maybe you're just cold and you're thinking, all right, what does this what does this mean? I I, I need to hear this because I am like that seminary student. Um, Maybe you have some security, some assurance, but you want more. Maybe you're thinking, ugh, I like this church. I even like Eric. But man, this is what I was afraid of. You're going to just start talking about all this stuff about where you're going to get metaphysical and ontological and start talking about things and drawing diagrams about election and predestination and how this is going to weigh down. Eric will preach on that next week. I don't want you to overthink this, though, because I want you to remember the mojo, the flow, the impetus of why Paul is preaching, why he is talking in the first place. That love is what anchors this passage, and it is Paul's joy. And so whenever he talks about, and he's talking about blessing, and whenever he talks about predestination and, 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 and election and these things that have this these time kind of concepts or even beyond time camp concepts think of it this way this is just how lovers talk and this is Paul talking about being loved by God because have you ever been and maybe you've been this couple uh, you, or you, you've been in the presence of a couple and maybe they're celebrating their first anniversary or maybe they're talking about their 50th anniversary and they start talking about their story right they start reminiscing and they kind of get to the question when they say when did you know that I was the one when did you know and they start oh well you know and my grandfather actually answered that he he talked about seeing my grandmother walking down a street and was like she's the lady for me right and so everyone has uh he loved her for more than that but he was obviously drawn to her but everyone has that kind of story who's been in love and This is just Paul kind of giving the answer, when did you know? He's telling the story of of God saying, you know when I knew that I loved you? Before the foundation of the world. Before anything else had happened, before anything, time had even begun to unfold, I had set my love, my affection, my purposes to bless you. I had done all, I decided to do that, and I began working that plan before the foundation of the world. That's when I knew. And that's the chief takeaway when we talk about election and God's predestination. But what else is he saying? Because remember, Legos, stacking on the Lego of blessings, right? How else, why else is God's love played out? Look at verse 7 says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. 
Now, when I was pastor over at Hope, and by the way, I have a day job. Eric made it sound like I'm just hanging out in coffee shops and reading. I work for this ministry that is, uh, works with Reform University Fellowship. I pastor other pastors. Uh, sorry, Eric. Man. When I was pastor at Hope, uh, there was a woman. Uh, she helped serve on our music team. She's great. She's still there. Uh, but, and I, I would pick out the music and she was like, man, I am so bummed whenever we do this one song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I was like, well, why? She's like, it is, it's just kind of gross. It's weird. I think people are just, we're talking about blood and guts and gore and stuff. Now look on one level, completely understand that. That's not, that's kind of not our world. Um, but in another sense, if we're going to get into what Paul is talking about whenever he talks about spirituality, he's like, yes, yes, give me more blood. Give me more. We have to talk about blood if we're going to talk about redemption because real spirituality with the real God is not just incense, bells, quiet reflection. It takes blood. It took the blood of Jesus. Why? Because we are a violent and bloody people. We resist God. We, we hate each other. And God comes to me and he comes to you and he turns our bloodiness and our violence on its head. And he says, let the blood and violence come to me, on me, so that I can free you and rescue you from your bloodiness. And your violence. Now you see what Paul's doing. Let's step back a little bit into the Old Testament. Paul, in using this language, is, is telling the story of the cross, right? He's having to re-understand everything that God has done in the past by what God has done in the present, his present, in Jesus. And so he is telling the story of the cross through Jewish history, and particularly the Jewish story of Passover. And you see that word there printed in your order of worship, redemption. Redemption just means this. It's not just taking your, your, your empty bottles to get five cents at Fred Meyer or wherever you take them. Redemption means to buy, in this context, to buy, to set free a slave, to redeem them, to buy them out, to, to, to let them go so that someone who was once in bondage is now let go. And so you remember in the book of Exodus, Israel had been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, and there were multiple attempts on the part of God to free them. We go through one, two, seven, eight, nine different miracles that uh, really and they end up being plagues, God trying to set them free. And then finally, the last judgment, what does God do? He promises in this 10th plague that the blood of the firstborn will be shed. But so that judgment would not fall on his people Israel, they would put blood, the Israelites would put blood over the door and God would pass over. They would not be judged, but instead they would be set free. Israel was shown mercy. And now Paul reads that story in light of Jesus, who is God's firstborn, and says his blood is shed so that God will pass over us. He will redeem us and bring us back to himself. He will redeem us and set us free from our slavery. Now, you're thinking, that's good for anyone who's a slave. <laughs> but I'm not a slave. I am not a slave. But you know what? Spiritually speaking, in terms of our relationship to God, we are. All of us are. 
Martin Luther, and really he's just piggybacking on this other guy named Augustine, taught that we are turned in on ourselves, that all the gifts and the goodness of our capacities, our will, our emotions, our, our ability to love that is meant to love God and love others instead is just turned in on ourselves in rejecting God and rejecting others. And so even though we were made to reflect God's glory, instead we live for ourselves. And the smoke from that inferno are things like anxiety, insecurity, which kind of gives us an indication that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And why do we have those kinds of things? Well, there's lots of different reasons, but some of the chief ones are that we live our lives using lies, money, power, sex, to use people, to get what we want first. And the Bible describes that very simply as sin. And sin is chiefly against God. It's what ruptures, it breaks, even severs our relationship with him. But it also describes it as slavery, that we are bound to do those things unless someone intervenes from outside of us. We need redemption. And in Christ, God says, let me cover you. I'll give my blood to free you. It takes nothing less than that. And that should melt our mind and our heart to think that God, not only before the foundation of the world, loved us, but in space and time did something to secure that love, even when we pushed away. It's a forgiveness that is free because it's a gift, but it's also a forgiveness that costs. See, everything costs something. Everything. Let me give you, uh, and especially our salvation, let me uh, give you maybe a borderline stupid example to argue from lesser to the greater here. Um, as part of my job, I fly frequently. Um, I'm, I'm going to lots of different places. And you know you've heard of those Christians who can't wait to get on an airplane so they can talk to other people and maybe talk to them about the Lord. I am not one of those people. Um, I, I, do, I will sometimes even pray for people, but I want to get kind of in my bubble when I get on an airplane, right? And so I'm sitting there. And one of the ways I get in my bubble is um, I, some, I just need some high-powered noise reduction headphones that will just block out the sound, of the, air, the sound of the airplane and everything else, and I can just be in, the, in little pat utopia for the next 90 minutes, right? Y'all are judging me. Don't judge me, man. Uh, or maybe do judge me, but... Anyway, one of the ways that I, you know, I've seen these headphones, I don't have them, and I'm not at, this isn't kind of a, you know, left-handed way of asking someone to get them for me, but Bose makes these wonderful noise-reducing headphones, and I thought, man, I would love those so much, and I've tried them on, they're nice, I have some that are not as nice, but, um, you know, they cost 300 bucks, so definitely don't get them for me, I don't, I don't need those, but I look at them, I kind of lust for them in an unhealthy way, just like, ah, I'd love to have them. Uh, now, let's say I got them. 300 bucks. And let's say you're sitting next to me and you're the one person I decide to talk to on the airplane. I'll let you use them. And you put them on. And you put on your Cinderella or Motley Crue or whatever it is you listen to and you just blow them out. And you ruin them and you hand them back. And you're like, oh, they're broken. Now at that point, there's a couple of things that can happen. You can pay me and we can be reconciled, right? You can say, you know what, I'm sorry. I blew out your $300 Bose noise reduction headphones or and that'd be fine or I can decide you know what I'm going to forgive you now I still need to go back and 
pay for the headphones. I need to, you know, get that taken care of. But somehow, some way, those things need to be covered. Now, right, I told you it was kind of borderline stupid, but that's something that communicates, right? Someone has to pay, either the person who broke them or the person who was, uh, had them broke. So much more. When we are talking about how it is that we relate to God, forgiveness has to be paid for. And in Christ, we are told by God, I don't care what you've done. I will pay the cost so that you and I can be family, so that we can be reconciled. And so you can be free from all the things that corrode you and keep you from being fully and authentically human in the divine image. That is who God is, and that is what he's done for us. Look, there's more to be said. Eric's going to talk some more next week. But just let me ask you the question that I started with. Because this isn't just theoretical. Paul didn't just write this so we could, you know, beat up on people who don't agree about election. He says, he doesn't say, I say this. I want you to ask yourself, are you at a place in your life? As you think about God, the love of God, what God has done for you before the foundation of the world, what he has done for you in Christ where you see his blessing, his redeeming, his filling by the Spirit as your story. And it is a story that is personal and that gives you joy and gives you hope and fullness. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, please hear our prayer. Help us to understand in such a way that we are moved to prayer, to thanksgiving, to deeper faith, to sincere repentance that leads and change lives, to a kind of giving of ourselves and our time for the sake of others. Lord, who are you? You are the God who chose us before the foundation of the world, not based on anything we could or couldn't do, would or wouldn't do. And what have you done to work that love out? You have redeemed us. Lord, from beginning to end, it is your grace. And it is a love that will not let us go. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.